Thank you to everyone who supports this show and all the shows at the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. Listen, if you are not already, do us a favor and just head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash major spoilers and just see all these extra cool things that you can get if you decide to become a member. That's all I'm asking this week. Just go and check out the site, see what we're trying to do to make more content for you. And now let's do a show. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I am Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In... This issue will travel the universe with a meow, find our way through the digestive tract of a caterpillar, listen to strange frequencies in the night, and defend the village against our foes. Plus, returns and escapes and changes and lots more stuff. So set them up, we'll knock them down, and somebody else can sweep it all up, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 881 of the Major Spoilers podcast. Thank you for joining us this week, a little bit later in the show. We will be looking at some astral projected cats. Uh, none of them uh, are have any rainbows behind them, and they're not inside of a uh, inside of a pop tart. So we'll find uh-huh. out what all that means in just a little bit. But first, let's get to some news. What is, what pop tart? What <sighs> your meme foo is really bad, Matthew. Anyway, Batman returns. Returns. Cobra Kai moves from YouTube to Netflix, and Joel Schumacher has passed. Let's spin that wheel of destiny. And let's see where we land. Around and around and around it goes. Where it stops. Oh, it looks like rumor territory is where it goes. Into Batman Returns. Returns! Looks like Michael Keaton. This is a, according to the rap. Uh, Michael Keaton looks to be in talks to play Bruce Wayne in the Flash movie. And maybe Batman as a connecting character or Bruce Wayne as a connecting character through a bunch of MCU movies. Or not MCU, DCU movies. If it was MCU, that'd be really interesting. That would be awesome. I would love to see Keaton play Batman in an MCU movie. So, reminder, everybody, in talks does not mean it has happened, does not mean that contracts have been signed, does not mean that this is for sure going on. In fact, last I heard, Ashley, they weren't even sure they were going to be doing a Flash movie with Ezra Miller after the last uh, little incident that he had. I mean, the only thing that I'll say about that, because there's been no official announcement, is uh, WB is really good at uh, keeping uh, problematic actors with bad behavior towards women on their major franchises, uh, including another one that Mr. Miller is a part of, looking at you, Fantastic Beasts, and Mr. Johnny Depp, who beat up Amber Heard. So, uh, there's that. So, I, I think there's a good chance that he's still this movie will still happen, um, unfortunately. Did, did, did the director not walk away from it? A couple of directors, I thought. I mean, they've been through 185 directors at this point, so there's always someone who will direct the Flash movie. Um, I said my conspiracy theory the last time the director walked away. I think, I think Jeff Johns is gunning to direct this, mm. and I think he's going to be the one who winds up directing this. Interesting. Um, that, which is all to say... Uh, in talks means that one assistant reached out to another assistant and maybe an executive <laughs> reached out to an agent or a uh, manager and they probably had a Zoom call. That's what that actually means. So what do we think? You know what we uh, should do is we should, should have this guy come on. Should we bring yeah. Michael Keaton back as Batman or as Bruce Wayne, older, wiser, and really ready to lend an ear 
to uh, to these young up and coming superheroes, Matthew. Absolutely, yes, and th- there are two reasons why. Uh, one is the cheap pop of a character, you know, coming back and recurring that role. I mean, I know that when Crisis on Infinite Earths gave me literally five seconds of Burt Ward, you couldn't pry the smile off my face for the rest of the episode. But I think, in a more important sense, having an older character, especially in if they're you know continuing the continuity of that justice league universe where literally everybody but wonder woman is a young hotshot jerk and then of course there's batman who's an old hotshot jerk having a character who is designed to be wiser who's designed to be in a mentor role who's designed to take that you know the alan scott the jay garrick overseer kind of hey we've been where you are we've done the stupid stuff maybe you know chill out on this I feel like that's something that really could improve that universe. As a lot of people are pointing out, this is very much a uh, Bruce Wayne as Nick Fury for the DC universe. Rodrigo, some uh, some thoughts on on this uh, this rumor? Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne as Nick Fury in The Flash. Um, All in the uh, Avengers Initiative. <laughs> I it, it's interesting because when you say what if an older Bruce Wayne uh, served in a mentor uh, capacity to a young up-and-coming superhero? The first thing I think of is Batman Beyond, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I I like that dynamic. Um, so I, I feel like like maybe finally the like Warner Brothers is going to start taking stuff out of Marvel's playbook of being like, what are what are like the saucy things? What are like the interesting and like uh, just kind of like weird things that we haven't done yet with these characters, which is most of them. Um, you know, what's interesting, what's cool, what's weird. Let's put that on the screen. I think they did it with um, with Shazam a lot more, right? Where they're like, what's weird about this character? It's like, well, what's weird about this character is that sometimes there are seven of them. It's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. You know, like, and and it was fine. It's interesting. Um, So this idea of basically taking that, you know, uh, Bruce and Terry relationship and sticking it somewhere else uh, could work very well for them because it's a very satisfying arc. And it's it's if done properly, it can actually really pay off for them. Uh, Ashley, forgive me for asking this, but you've seen the original 89 Batman, right? I have. Okay, just just wanted to double check. For checking it. Totally just fine. because I know that there's some other movies that you have maybe not seen that are around that same age. So I just wanted to yeah. take, make sure. So let me ask. Uh, uh, let's say that this happens. Michael Keaton tapped as as uh, to play Batman or Bruce Bruce Wayne in this movie or both. If he if he dons the, the cape and cowl, do you want to see him in that uh, that rubbery costume <laughs> from from the 80s? Or do you want to see him in a more modern uh, costume like maybe what we saw with Matt uh, or not Matt Damon with uh, Ben Affleck or maybe even uh, what we've seen with the Robert Pattinson uh, costume. Um, I would like to see him. I think Matthew made a great comparison when he brought up Crisis on Infinite Earths earlier. I would like to see him in a version of the cowl that looks kind of like the treatment that they gave to the John Wesley ship flash costume, which oh, yeah. is obviously uh, it's obviously the costume that we are used to seeing that actor in but it has been made 
on a higher budget with better materials because mm-hmm. this is how superhero shows and movies are operated right now. So I think right. if he's going to suit up, of course I want it to be in something that evokes his classic screen costume where he cannot move his head. Yeah. However, I'm more interested in the Flashpoint story where he is Thomas. Yes. And uh, I'm calling it right. I'm saying it right now. I'm putting it out in the universe. Michelle Pfeiffer would be an awesome Martha Joker uh-huh. from that same story that be, series. That would be really uh, interesting. Now that you mentioned that, maybe maybe that's what I would like to see is not him reprising his role as Batman, but as Thomas Wayne uh, and uh, screaming shock me and, and having Ezra Miller screaming shock me again, shock me again. I now mean, that, that's the only part of Flashpoint that I like. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. That <laughs> was hope. that was the most and, interesting and, part. And I do understand, and we talk about this here a lot of the show, that it's not going to be a direct lift from the Flashpoint. Well, unless uh, Jeff Johns is in charge. Books. Jeff Johns is involved, so it might be. Well, we have, we've seen Flashpoint six or seven times mm-hmm. on the CW shows. And also uh, and in, in the animated movies. And yeah. <laughs> well, it has become the quintessential Flash story without ever being interesting or particularly good. And so this, I mean, this is basically the Dark Knight Returns for Flash or, you know, whatever it is you would say your your big Superman moment would be probably, you know, Superman the movie. But uh, I don't know. I would be fine with him playing Thomas Wayne as, you know, the elderly Batman. I don't know. How old is Michael Keaton? He's like, what? 60? He's older than us. Well, yeah, but a lot of people are older than us. I mean, yeah. John Wesley Ship was 61 when he came back to play Flash. So Michael Keaton can't be a day over 70. I mean, he's in good shape. For those of you that uh, missed like our... Look like he's 68. Yeah, so that for those of sense. you who missed our pre-show, we had a lot of talk about uh, Spider-Man. And, of course, we did see Michael Keaton play the Vulture in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, so, you know, he could easily, you know, still do some action stuff. Uh, especially with some far shots and stunt doubles and digital doubles and all those kinds of things. I think he could Come pull on, it off pretty that easily. Wasn't him. Question for you, Rodrigo. Would you rather see him be uh, Thomas Wayne? Would you rather see him be Bruce Wayne? Or would you rather see him be uh, old Bruce Wayne and Terry McGinnis in a Batman Beyond? I mean, I, I probably would rather see a Batman Beyond movie just that is separate from any other of the, what, DCEU? Mm hmm. Um, that, that would be my choice. And I think Michael Keaton would be a fine older Bruce Wayne. He would bring a different energy that Kevin Conroy does to that character, but that's good. That would be fine. You can, you know, cast, uh, someone young to, to play against them. And it, it, that sounds great. Um, as far as Will, things Will that Friedle are actually 45, oh my God, yeah, no, you Christ. can't cast, you can't cast Will Friedel. Um, uh, you can't. You can't cast any of those guys that uh, voiced our 90s cartoons because, you know. Uh, I do think it was a travesty that Will Friedel was not in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I'm sure that that had to do with budgetary concerns, but. Yeah, <laughs> I think, um, you know, Rob Paulson yeah. is still playing Teenage Turtles, but. Uh, He's like 77. Like, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, as far as things that are actually potentially going to happen, I guess I'd rather see him as. Bruce and Flash because I don't like Flashpoint and them being like oh he'll be Thomas it just is just like is just asking for that scene right it's like that exact same scene that you described earlier I hated that I don't I like there's almost <laughs> nothing about Flashpoint that I liked um 
in the comics or in the cartoon when I saw it later. Um, and so anything that gets us away from that, I'm, I'm all for. Yeah. I was going to make a comment, but now I was, I was trying to double check really quick. Am I not mistaken? Was Scud the disposable assassin in Static Shock? The animated series? No, you're thinking, I think, you're of... You're thinking of uh, Zeta Project. Oh, Zeta Project. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, All that right. was... The red-headed stepchild of that universe. Yeah. That was crossed yeah. over with Batman, the animated series, yeah. and Static Shock. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. Yeah. That's the one I was Zeta Project of. had a backdoor pilot in Batman Beyond. Mm-hmm. And then... And a, and a character Oscar. model who was basically Terry McGinnis. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts on this crazy rumor, why don't you head over to our Discord server and you can chat with some other really cool spoilerites. Uh, yeah, I may be talking about you, uh, but uh, there's a link in the show notes to the Discord server. Just pop over there, chat to your heart's content. A bunch of really cool people over there. Hope to see you over there real soon. Now, let us jump into some reviews. Reviews. I think mine is the oldest one on here, and it is a movie that is starting to get a little bit of attention because uh, Guillermo del Toro tweeted about it, I believe, last weekend. And so I was like, okay, let me let me go see what, what the, the hubbub is about. Uh, it is The Vast of Night from Andrew Patterson. It is his uh, first movie, super low budget, $700,000 for this 1950s period piece sci-fi thriller, I guess I want to say. Um and I don't want to say it's a scary movie because it's really not. It is a very narrative movie that tells a story about this uh, 1950s New Mexico small town that in the middle of the night, a switchboard operator who is a high schooler and the local DJ over at WOTW uh, suddenly pick up this weird sound bouncing across the valley while everyone else in town is over at the local basketball game. And they are tracking this uh, sound down and they start getting phone calls from people who are telling stories about uh, how um, how uh, they remember seeing this uh, this object or an object uh, years ago when when they heard this sound or another woman tells her story about how her child disappeared right around the same time that this uh, that this sound came up and it slowly, slowly, slowly draws you in. It's really cool what this person did for $700,000. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the two actors, Faye Crocker and Everett Sloan, um, or the, um, uh, the actors who play those two, those two characters, uh, because this movie requires a lot of really long takes. There are takes in here that are five minutes long or longer. It is really, really good. Um, and so if you are a fan of that, if you're a fan of shots, uh, there's one shot, there's a couple of shots that actually run from one end of this little small town to the other end of this small town and back. And it is really amazing how they do that. It's, they fly into buildings, out of buildings. The, uh, the gimbal that they're using is really, really, uh, well done and choreographed. The long takes that these actors do draw you in. So if you're a fan of that and you're a fan of UFO sci-fi stuff, if you're a fan of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this is like Close Encounters of the Third Kind Light, the prequel. Uh, it's kind of very much like that. That being said, there are some major frustrating points in this movie that knock this thing down a lot of pegs. First of all, the movie opens up with you staring at a TV screen, an old 1950s TV screen, with somebody doing a their best Rod Serling impression, telling, hey, you're about to watch this TV show tonight, uh, The Vast of Night. 
And so, you know, then it's this black and white screen that slowly dissolves into the color movie that you're watching. Uh, so that's a little bit of a distraction. It becomes an even bigger distraction when throughout the movie, for no reason whatsoever, you keep cutting back to this TV screen in the black and white, you know, crappy image of the broadcast that, that if it was in the 1950s. And it's super distracting and super takes you out of the action. If there is one thing that I would encourage this director to do is please go back and remove all of that stuff. Once the movie starts, do not go back to that ever again, because it is the worst thing to be, to have your audience being yanked out of a, out of a story where they're starting to get more and more engrossed and maybe more and more terrified or nervous that the aliens are coming, that an alien attack is imminent, uh, only to say, oh, remind, remember, this is only a TV show. That's not how that should be. I mentioned long takes, and there are some really cool conversations that go on, including with a black uh, former army person who was uh, in charge of digging out a UFO some years previous. And we hear him over the, over the, uh, the telephone as our DJ friend is uh, played by Jake Horowitz uh, is interviewing him. And so we get, you know, we start to push in on the actor as he's listening to this conversation and it gets more and more deep. And then all of a sudden, for no reason, we just go to black. The screen is just black while this actor continues to tell his side of the story of what happened. And then it'll come back to the, to the, uh, to the DJ in the, in the radio booth. And then it'll go back to a, just a completely black screen. And it's almost like, did you run out of budget? And you just thought that this would be a clever way to make this mystery man, just really a mystery man. Because if that's the case, just show somebody sitting in a chair with their back to the camera. And you could have done the same thing and not had probably four or five minutes of the film, just total black. And it's super, super frustrating. And so while I can see that there is an interesting story being told and there are some very cool techniques that are being uh, used and there are some great actors in the form of uh, Sierra McCormick and, and Jake Horowitz in this, in this piece, some of the editing decisions and some of the directorial decisions in the final piece are really bad decisions. So while people are starting to give this a lot of praise, this is an Amazon uh, Prime movie, um, I can only give it three and a half slices of meatloaf. I probably would probably knock it down to three slices of meatloaf. The only reason I'm giving this three and a half slices of meatloaf is because as much as I was getting frustrated at some of the bad storytelling techniques and some of the choices that were made, and I was like, oh, this movie is just crap. By the end of the movie, I was really drawn in. And for the next two days, it was the only thing that I could think about. It was like, oh, that was really interesting. Oh, I really liked how they did that. Oh, I really like how... They were building up slowly throughout the movie this part of the story. And so there were things about it that I think if you're still thinking about a movie two days later, there's something good about it. But don't go into this thinking that this is going to be the next Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It wants to be that, but unfortunately it, it isn't. It's still very interesting to watch. If you are a film student, uh, I would encourage you to watch because, again, this is a period piece, 1950s, everyone's, you know, period cars, period costumes. Uh, they searched all throughout, I want to say, Texas to find a gymnasium that fit the gymnasium that the director saw in his head. And this small town, they had to build a small radio station for this piece. They had to find a original switchboard uh, things that worked for this piece. So for $700,000, I think they got their money's worth. Uh, and I think you watching this would probably get your money's worth if you're an Amazon Prime member already. But I think that it's lacking in many places. Uh, so that's why I'm only giving uh, The Vast of Night three and a half slices of meatloaf out of five. Again, 
This was one that went to some festivals. It was supposed to be released in theaters in 2019. Amazon Studios finally purchased it, I want to say, in February of this year, and it released, I want to say, in February or March or this year. But now suddenly everyone's talking about it uh, because of Guillermo del Toro tweeting out that he watched it and thought it was a fantastic movie. So there you go. Uh, okay, let us jump now to uh, Matthew with The Ludocrats, number two. Now, we reviewed the first the issue of this on the Dueling Review podcast. That's another show that Matthew and I do. You can find it over at Majorspoilers.com. And yeah. I was not a super fan of this. So let me know, Matthew, how the, the second issue uh, plays out. You would still not be a fan. Well, that's good. The Ludocrats number two is actually subtitled Heroic Acts of Viscera Diving and Gigantipede Stimulation. Uh, as you may or may not remember, at the end of Ludocrats number one, our main character, Otto von Seberstein Klava Flava Flava, uh, was left for dead with the woman that he just met, who he's decided he's completely in love with, uh, captured by the Omnipope. And the Omnipope has taken her away, and so he has to capture her back or something. Uh, she was his soulmate, he says, even though he's known her for all of five minutes. And um, you know how issue one ended, uh, opened rather, rather with the full frontal nudity of the really, really hefty man? Yeah. Yeah, there's more of that. Oh, well, joy. Yeah, you do get to see a lot of uh, little Otto. And I suppose that's fine. I mean, if, if I want to see uh, heavy set men naked, I have mirrors. But everybody has their thing. And it fits with the tone of the piece, which is these people are ludicrous. They are insane. They are woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. They do things. And the worst sin in their society is being boring. So when he starts to mount this rescue effort, it can't just be a rescue effort. He has to bring in a chef called the Capering Chainsaw Gastronaut and a celebrity plastic surgeon and uh, the betrayer of the swine men, Voldigan the Perfidious, who can travel through the shadows and, uh, you know, transfer his form back and forth through the universe. And, of course, some sort of Shagoth. But um, their plan comes up against small problems because apparently his beloved is being held in the stomach of the gigantopedic spermatozoic lepidopterapede, uh, which is to say a cloud caterpillar. And the cloud caterpillar, and we are treated to this discussion in long and intense detail, has no excretory orifices, only a black hole in its stomach, which then transports anything to a far-off dimension. And so... They can't just wait for her to exit the creature. Again, a discussion that we have in long detail. So they have to get her out uh, by uh, showing the caterpillar a good time and having the caterpillar eject her, uh, for lack of a better word, and everything's fine. And everything about issue one that you were bothered by and that I was bothered by as well just the aren't we random hooray craziness is dialed up a little bit more in this issue. Mm. Uh, at, at one point there is an actual, like uh, just a weird amoeba person. And they're like, okay, weird amoeba person. And he's like, Hey, I'm a weird amoeba person. And what I really want is this, this is my goal in life. And they're like, great, we're going to destroy you and inject you with this terrible thing and kill you. Ha ha. And I'm like, but that amoeba person, all he wanted was, was to be happy. 
And it's just, uh, it is intentionally over all of the tops. There are long and involved discussions of the excretory and ejaculatory functions of this creature and how it's going to play into this and how they're going to save this girl. And once they do save her, she's like, you realize I live there. They had me on house arrest in my home. And the only way I'd talk to any of you people is if you torture me. They're like, well, we're not going to do that. And she's like, I said, torture me. And so the issue ends with the celebrity plastic surgeon stepping forward and going, hey, this is right up my alley. And so it's gross, <laughs> I guess, is, is for lack of a better word. Really, my takeaway from this is it is gross. It is intentionally in your face about literally every aspect of it. And they, if there's a lampshade to be hung, they will hang that lampshade and maybe light it on fire just so you can see it in case Gondor calls for aid. And for me, everything that I liked about the first issue, uh, you know, the clarity of the coloring, the storytelling and the art, the general wittiness of the dialogue is still there. And everything that exhausted me is dialed up to Nigel Tufnell levels. And I feel like we're now on 11. We're two issues into a five-issue series. And I just don't know if I have the wherewithal to keep going. Um, three slices of meatloaf, though, for the stuff that I like. If this sounds like it's up your alley, if you are really into jokes being shouted at the top of their lungs uh, by people who know all of the actual punchlines and are going to join in and cry from the crowd, I would say this might be for you. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. There is a very specific kind of love in these pages and a, something that I feel like I'm sort of attracted to, but I'm also too old for, if that makes any sense, as sad as that sounds. So three slices of meatloaf for the ludocrats, number two. It's a not a book for me, but it's a book that does some things well, and there, it's a book that does some other things in a way that is done. So, yeah. All right. There you go. Are you going to be reading issue number three? Um, we'll, hmm. Maybe not of my own accord. I mean, if it shows up, if it's like on my feed and I'm sitting at Comixology and it's like, hey, hey, you know how you read number two? I might click it. I'm, I might but I'm also very leery of it. I mean, I heard recently that there's a sequel to Manos, The Hands of Fate, and I, I, I regard that with a combination of perverse fascination and dread, and I feel like this is the same thing. I want to know what more of it will be like, but also I don't. You know, it's, it's the problem I had with Black Mirror, the first episode of Black Mirror. They're like, this happens. And I'm like, that is but the I don't number one reason why I refuse to watch that series. I'm the same way. I don't want to see that. And so, you know, well, that's, that's why we're married, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost two years now. Uh, mm -hmm. Happy anniversary, by the way. And the thing that anyway, that's the end of my review. Uh, you know what we don't talk <laughs> enough about on this on this show? John Wick. <laughs> I'm and, sorry. And I know what? he's got sorry, I, know yes. he's, I know he's got a couple of movies out and he's had a comic book series. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if we've really talked about John Wick on this show. So, Ashley, please, uh, out this week, John Wick, the trade paperback volume one, which I don't know if we've reviewed any of those. I may have reviewed one issue of that. But let this us know. This is definitely um, one of those volumes that was supposed to come out a lot earlier. Yeah. the solicit code is for, like, April. Uh, you know, and then the world caught on fire and is still on fire. But we need uh, handsome, handsome, progressive, amazing, lovely 
Keanu Reeves in our lives so we can watch him beat some people to death, including a lot of white people. So maybe that'll be cathartic for some people right now. Mm. Uh, John Wick, volume one, I don't believe it has a subtitle, uh, is written by Greg Pak with art by Matt Gaudio. I'm sorry if I say your name wrong. And only say Greg Pak's name right because I love Greg Pak. I'll read anything he writes which was my number one push to pick this up because I watched John Wick last year because Jason and the Geek History Lesson audience bullied me into doing it, and it was fine. This volume tells the story of what if John Wick, like, was younger and uncovered different mythology than in the first movie when he went back to that life for the first time, which is what can be kind of tricky about a prequel series because in a lot of ways this feels like a redux of the first movie without the star-studded cast that you're used to and a lot Mm. more of well they're an assassin they just kind of look like a normal person and not enough lance reddick which is also a problem with the movie if i'm going to be completely honest it's totally a fun action story the fights are executed surprisingly well considering uh the the level of the choreography and the fight scene execution is the reason why john wick blew up in the first place and the reason that everybody fell in love with it and now we're going on to god i believe the fourth john wick movie and again honestly good for keanu reeves he seems like a nice handsome man um but this volume for me didn't give me anything really new on the character and that might just be because in a big dumb action movie you you, if you're not going to kill the dog there's only so much emotional depth that you could give it and i say big dumb action movie with a lot of love because i think pacific rim is one of the best movies ever made and is the biggest dumbest action movie of all time so i think if you are already a fan of john wick this volume and it's a pretty quick read it's be like a great not that anyone's traveling right now it'd be a great plane read Um, I think if you're a fan, this is a great addition to the canon. It does a lot of stuff really well. John Wick looks like Keanu, which is kind of all you can ask for if you're going for a likeness, as opposed to making the choice that nobody looks like the actors. Uh, And the covers, the cover art and the pinup gallery is really, really gorgeous. However, I am holding this up to Greg Pak's James Bond story, which... Uh, we recently read, uh, recently, I mean, what is time? It was probably a year and a half yeah. ago. Yeah, the ago. Greg Pak, James Bond series here for Major Spoilers. And I just think that that does the same structure and hits a lot of the same tropes better. Uh, and, you know, that's also the difference between a franchise and a license that's been around since the 40s with the books. Maybe the 50s. Oh, I couldn't Bond, be bothered to Google it, the, obviously. Definitely the uh, 50s. Uh, and, you know, a movie that I, I think is a franchise that's been out for, like, less than 10 years. So if you like anyone on the creative team, if you like the subject matter, totally good to check out. If not, I don't think this is going to be what gets you into John Wick. Uh, but I gave it a three out of five because it was fun and it was pretty. Very nice. All right. Let us look. What are we, a week ahead, a week from now, Rodrigo, with Dryad number three from Oni Press. I think it might be Two weeks from now? Yeah, two weeks from now. Sorry. Um, yes, Dryad number three. Um, I reviewed Dryad number two on the show. Uh, this is from Oni Press. Uh, writer Curtis J. Weeby. 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 Yeah. And uh, artist Justin Osterling. Uh, 
So uh, Dryad is a story about elves and orcs and magic, but also super cool lasers and like virtual re- reality dreamscapes and things like that. But it's not Shadowrun. It's different. You can there can be more than one, guys. Um, so uh, this story so far has kind of hinged on. The fact that we're following, there's kind of a, there's like a set of parents and a set of kids, and the kids uh, are slowly finding out that they've been M. Night Shyamalan's The Villaged. Um, and in fact, the world outside of their village is much more advanced. And also, that um, the reason why they're in this village is because their parents were significant people that had to disappear. So a lot of this issue is concerned with kind of getting, basically the entirety of this issue is getting these two groups back together so that they can confront each other or, or talk to each other, basically so the kids can confront their parents about, you know, the fact that they've been lying to them this whole time. Um, it's pretty solid. I you get glimpses of the world outside of this village. You know, the, this series starts out as like, oh, this is a fantasy story, you guys. And as it turns out, it's more of a technology story, although magic is still kind of a thing. Um, but up until now, we've just seen the people that come into this village. So we are kind of on our way to to figuring out what the rest of this world actually looks like, right? Which is pretty interesting. Um, it's, uh, the art's good. It's good times. I, I, again, especially like the VR stuff, which, like, goes kind of wacky with the color uh, palette, which is nice. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I enjoyed it. Um, after the last one, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to pick up the next one. Uh, but I'm glad that I did. I'm going to give it three slices of meatloaf. Um, and yeah, if you if this sounds like uh, something that you'd be into, definitely track down the first two and then jump into this one. Jump If you were to jump into this one cold, um, I think it's, it would make a lot less sense than, say, jumping into the second one cold, which is what I did. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend that you track down the earlier uh, issues. All right. Very good. Thank you for that, Rodrigo and Ashley and Matthew, for your reviews. And listeners, don't forget, head over to Majorspoilers.com for a whole lot of more reviews and uh, even more stuff over there at Majorspoilers.com. Uh, I want to thank uh, Isotoner.com and Toads.com for helping to support this episode of the Major Spoilers Podcast. If you want to save some money when you go and check out at isotoner.com or totes.com, T-O-T-E-S, make sure you use the checkout code MAJOR, M-A-J-O-R, and you will get 25% off. What are you waiting for? Head over there to isotoner and totes.com and uh, make some purchases. What else are you going to do? Oh, you can stick around while we talk about Strayed, Strayed Volume 1 from Dark Horse Comics. Now, I believe Ingrid reviewed this comic I think she reviewed every single issue over at Majorspoilers.com when uh, when they were coming out. This is something that is very, very different in that we have a cat that is able to astral project and uh, visit other worlds and other realms. And in the process, finds a power supply that the cat then comes back and communicates with the owner and an evil government agency 
and they go out and uh, try to, uh, well, not try to, they take over all these planets in an attempt to find this magnificent power source. And I want to say, Rodrigo, uh, this is probably a book that is uh, right up your alley. Um, yeah. Uh, recently, you want to you want to give us a, a dive into your your thought process here. Um, I read the first issue of Strayed, and uh, I was like, "Oh, this is pretty good." I'm probably gonna lose track of it. What with everything that's gonna go on, so I was like, "Hey, Stephen, when <laughs> when the trade for Strayed comes out, oh, yeah. let's read it so that so that like, we actually sit down and read it." And it's, I mean, it's a pretty weird book. Um, it has a, kind of a, an aesthetic that, to me, looks like a Saturday morning cartoon mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, the art kind of has that going on. Um, there's a lot of time spent uh, astrally projecting with the cat, which changes the way that things look. The cat looks different when he's astrally projecting. The environments look different. We see, like, probably a couple dozen different like glimpses at different worlds in the process and they're all pretty weird um and lots of different species and things so yeah i mean this is uh you know kind of in the end a book about like a lady and her cat but in the in the process of resolving that story it's about um you know it's got all of this like weird sci-fi stuff going on as well well and it certainly is diving into the area of colonialism and you know the problems with the military industrial complex uh and uh and and so much more in, in this tale uh matthew I, what are you what are your thoughts on this i did not know what to expect because at one point i was like hey i'd like to review this comic and then ingrid is like oh no I'm like oh, okay and i forgot about it and so i'm like there's a cute kitty on the cover it's clearly something about cute kitties but once it starts it just goes it doesn't necessarily feel to me like the first volume of something so we're just like yep here's Kara and here's her kitty and whoosh and the kitty can travel through time space and dimension which is fine and also he's just a normal kitty but I feel like the thing about it that caught me and caught me really hard is the fact that the cat is kind of the central character. Oh, yeah, yeah, most definitely. I was I was expecting like, you know, a, a, a partnership thing or even a cat from outer space thing where the cat has powers and Haley Mills follows it around and it's all from her perspective. But the majority of this is literally Lou the cat. And I kind of I like that. And I'm also my brain always wants to process who's going to read this, you know, who is this book for? Who's really going to love this? And I'm like, man, I don't know, but I kind of, I, I find myself strangely digging it and I'm like, okay, so am I weird or is everybody going to love this whole thing with the cute cat and the, the eighties vibe and the big super hyper color coloring job. I'm like, this is, this is nice. This is amazing to me, but, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm almost at a loss about what I like about it. That's well, kind of strange. Ashley, you are a cat lover with uh, Intern Brigo. Oh, uh, yes. What, what, what were your reactions after reading this? Uh, well, I sat beside Intern Brigo the whole time I read this book, and it's a pretty quick read. I think Matthew nails it. It does not feel like a volume one. It feels really like an OGN. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it 
is so swift in the storytelling that I can't imagine trying to read this monthly and uh, how deeply frustrating that must have been because yeah. there is such a level of mythology and world building that's going on here. And we're told almost nothing in exposition. The most exposition we really get uh, is from the two bad men in this book. But issue one just drops you in it and you, you figure out the gag of it pretty quick. Um, it's definitely elevated by the art, but I think the writing is so good because it trusts that you are with it the whole time. It gives you basically the bare minimum amount of information and really makes excellent use of the fact that this is a visual medium to tell you a lot of the story and to give you a lot of clues about how the twists and turns are going to come. And uh, while I don't think anything in this book is particularly surprising, I don't think it is by any means uh, predictable or silly. And everyone on this creative team, I think, is working at full throttle, even down to the lettering. The lettering is so excellent. Each character speaking a different language gets a different font, a different style of word balloon, a different style of tail on the word balloon. Like, it's so artistic at every single turn that it elevates the fact that this book was probably pitched as it's the story of a girl and a cat in space, which doesn't sound particularly complicated or elevated or innovative in any way. I think this book is so special. I loved it so much. Well, I do agree with you that yeah, that it's got to be super frustrating to have read this in a monthly form because uh, while it does hit you, I think maybe by the second issue, you get hit over the head with uh, colonial, colonialism, bad, military industrial complex, bad, animal abuse, bad, that four more issues of that being drawn out over the next four months. I think, I don't know if I would have enjoyed this reading this in uh, the monthly monthly form. I think that this is something that reads really great in a trade paperback form, but uh I think I would have been very disappointed if I were paying for this on a monthly basis. And I don't know if anyone else felt that exact same way after reading this. No, just me. Uh, no, not, not, I guess not particularly. I, 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 I was kind of hooked after the first issue. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe yeah, if I'd been picking it up monthly, as opposed to just randomly seeing that it came out and scrounging up to, to find the back issues right around um so yeah i i never really actually had that experience of having to wait okay. a whole month i i'd figure it would be the opposite for me if i had to wait a whole month whatever i found annoying about it would probably like dim until i right. picked it up again and i was like oh yeah that was kind of annoying mm, okay <laughs> the art in this i thought was fantastic as ashley was talking about and some of the other the others uh, had mentioned uh the use of color is just really cool and seeing everything from a cat's perspective, uh, the cat is smart, uh, but the cat is also not hyper intelligent, right? Because yeah, the cat right. is mm -hmm. being used, the cat is being abused, and the cat knows that, that it is like, oh, you must find this. It's like, okay, I'll go to this world. Nope, too scary. Let's go to this world. No, too smelly. Let's go to this world. Oh, no, it's too too bright. Uh, you know, and so we get that and we get a look at, as, as Ashley said, the world building that's going on here. And so I really, really enjoyed a lot of that aspect of the story. I kind of wish we would have got a little bit more bad guy stuff just to really drive home how bad our main villain is 
why, you know, why is it, why are these council members floating heads in a jar? Uh, you know, why, you know, why is this guy so certain that this is going to bring him everlasting life? Uh, you know, I, I just needed a little bit more vileness from I, I the bad think, guys. I think in general, uh, this book just hauls, right? It just moves so fast yes. through uh-huh. everything. And it counts on a small amount of di- a relatively small amount of dialogue per per concept and a lot of visual storytelling mm-hmm. where it's like if you see the bad guy and it's like the bad guy is like, oh, yes, of course, the council, I will do things by the law, <laughs> but secretly I will kill you later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, he, you know, straight up says in a word, basically says in a, in a thought, all, all but says in a thought balloon. Um, and but but more importantly, the the bad guy is like red. Yes. <laughs> And he looks he's like, like red, and he looks mad. He's got evil eye. He looks like a. Uh, uh, he looks like a manhunter. He looks like the who main did villain. Lee Pace play in Guardians of the Galaxy? That's who he looks like to me. Oh, uh, Ronan. Thank yeah. you. All I could think was Drax, and I knew it was a Drax. Yeah, I, I kept thinking those. that he's one looked, of those annihilation guys. I kept <laughs> thinking he looked like the main villain in the old '80s Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Oh yeah, like, like Avenger. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I I thought I felt that he looked like uh, the like Green Lantern prototype, like Manhunters. Yes. His, uh, yeah, I can see that. Helmet. The Omega Lantern, kind of. Yeah. Um. So yeah, a lot of you know, it's like, oh, here's the here's the good alien, or here's like all of these other aliens, and yeah, they look like monsters, but there's like the art is just like working overtime. It's like in this, the art is the cat. Um, and it's just like killing itself to be like from, look at this, from this angle, this monster is like, Oh, please don't hurt me. And they're like, shut up monster. Yeah. And that's it. That's what you get. And then we're moving on. Right. And you just get a lot of what is going on in this book through glimpses and through all of these moments. And they're being like, here's a space alien. Now here's the space alien. And it's all bruised. Um, and you know, the bad guy's like final plan to take over the, the world takes up like one page and then the bad guy (laughs) being defeated takes like two pages and it's like, yeah, we, I, I feel like this is, this would be, this could be a much larger story if it ever wanted to be, but it really didn't want to. It's, it's very rare that we get a comic book where where we get that usually it's kind of the opposite usually you know a writer will be so enamored with something that they spend like way too much time talking about it or you know from one issue to another they're like okay let me recap what has happened or let me tell you again what my powers are or whatever and this one just doesn't it has like a previously on page mm-hmm. and sometimes the cat kind of recaps what's been happening in, in thought balloons or in, in you know text boxes but it like it just has no time like we need to get through this guys was that do you think a downfall of this or i think it's i think it's both i think when you i think positively it reads like a fable Mm -hmm. because it feels like a fable it feels like somebody's telling you this story it kind of feels like a kid's telling you this story it's like so anyway the cat goes and then they find out there's something wrong with the cat and she's like, hey, boss, there's something wrong with the cat. We need to leave. And the boss is like, no, I'll kill you and the cat. And she's like, OK. So then they do it 20 more times. 
right? It's like, this literally happens in the book. The cat says, we do it again and again, or she says, we do it again and again, and then we do it 20 more times, and then we find this, right? And it's like, a lot of the time, that works for the book. But a lot of the time, if you at any point say, oh, that's cool, what's this about? Shut up, we're past it, you know? <laughs> it's like, what was wrong with the cat? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like, listen, we have we have a space, we have a like a, a transcendental civilization that backwards, like seated, like the same co-locating existential mystic plant into multiple planets. We can't dwell. We can't dwell on what the security guards' names are. Let's just go. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know. And like sometimes it feels like the like the book is like dragging you along. Like, we have so much to cover, and we only have five issues. Right. By contrast, though, um, oh my gosh, I can't even remember the name of the book that I want to compare this to. Um, The book, the three-issue series that we read about the four kids, and they all die. Oh, right, right, yeah, the The dead-end kids. kids. Yeah, yes, dead-end kids, yes. Um, But I was going to say, by contrast, even though the book does truck, which is why it reads so quickly... I never felt like I felt with Dead and Kids that we were robbed of information or that we were robbed of important moments because, yes, we were never told, like, specifically what's wrong with Lou and we're told very much in passing that it's taken him two months to recover, but that's not what they're driving at. That's not, like, right. the thesis as opposed to uh, when the girl fully got shot and recovered over the course <laughs> of two issues. Yes, right. right. Uh, Lou being incapacitated for a month is a it, it helps the plot right yes. it's a, it's, it's a, it's a way for, it's, it it's a way to once again for this book to just shotgun through a, a period of time so that we can get to the next beat whereas in like dead end kids is like like you need treatment because it takes place in the real world and somebody got shot and that's a big deal you can't you can't do that you can't just jump to the next thing you have to deal with it or not have the character get shot, right? Right. So what would you do differently, Rodrigo, in this story? Uh, I, I think I would probably... How many issues is it? Is it this five? This is like five, five, I think. I, I don't know. I feel like... It's like... I, I, I feel like this could be a few more issues and those issues could fill things in. Yeah, did you like, think... You, you, do you think the cat needed, this is weird to say, but do you think the cat needed some character development as it um, figures things out? I I didn't feel like the cat needed too much more character development because he's a cat. Like, you immediately feel for the cat because the cat doesn't understand things in the same way that humans do. And when he figures it out, he's sad. And you're like, oh, the cat's sad. That sucks. Um, I think that um, if you think about the major relationships in the book, it's like, uh, what's her name? Uh, yeah, the caretaker lady or the, 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 the Yeah, the lady mm-hmm. and the cat. Kara. And the, yeah, Kara. And then her and her immediate supervisor clearly have some sort of relationship, right? Um, and, you know, it's like, oh, I went to bat for you and all of this stuff. And we see, again, we see glimpses. We see memories and stuff that happened, but they happened very fast. I think, honestly, I think this could have benefited from a couple more issues. Like, one issue, just be like, Lou is out looking for planets, and what happens in that place when Lou is busy doing other stuff? And that could have shown us a lot of stuff. 
And I think we should have done uh, an issue from the point of view of one of the alien races of what it's like to, you know, have a, a human dropship fall on you and smash you in the face and be like, here's a shovel, start digging, mm-hmm. you know, um, and maybe use both of those to further, you know, what I what I feel is obviously a very direct message because it the 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 the, the book doesn't hide it at all oh no it doesn't like, pull yeah, any punches no yeah it doesn't pull any punches it's like yep imperialism bad um so it could have used a little bit more time to maybe get into why from besides a superficial standpoint imperialism bad yeah because i just feel like that bit when uh the the alien is saying no go see for yourself see how bad these people have turned the world I guess I was just wanting more reaction from the cat, more scenes of look how bad this really is for these planets. And yeah, and then, the cat kind of gets over it pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. But Part the cat of that is, is a cat. That's true. Right. And even though Lou is the lead, and Lou is obviously like way more intelligent than any real life cat ever thought about, even in the writing, the the thought structure is very simple and i think that's why nothing is ex- really explained or explored in a ton of depth yeah, it's like the story's told to you by a cat Could yeah. Be. oh yeah no no i don't uh, disagree with that uh in that we do get the major perspective is through the cat's eyes um but i i just wanted some more i don't know I, like i said this is a cat that's been enhanced that's been uh, had a lot of procedures done to it so that it can talk and so that it can uh communicate uh, and I was just hoping for maybe a little bit more realization, even if it's something as simple as cat don't like that. Or as I would say with my cat, oh, Mojo no like that. Mojo well, going to kill you now. Uh, kind of kind of stuff. And that's what and that's one of the issues with this book is that sometimes emotional things happen and you hope for a beat for those to land. And a lot of the time it doesn't give it to you. The only one that it really gives you is that last one. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's like the book is like, okay, so then this happens and this happens and the cat is sad. Stop reading the book. Go do your homework. Go feel it and then come back when you're ready Yeah. so we can get to the next thing. Well, and I think, though, and Ashley, I think that it is pretty obvious that the messages that this book is conveying, I don't think that there there are any problems with the book conveying those messages and showing those oh, messages sure, sure, either sure. through through the cat's eyes or through um, through the visual imagery. Yeah. Okay. I agree. <laughs> All right. Uh, so where 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 do we stand on this book, Matthew? What are some final thoughts on this on this issue on this volume? I was reminded of one of my favorite film experiences while reading this book. Uh, it's a movie from the '90s called Robot Carnival, and each chunk of it—it's an anthology—is basically a standalone chapter of something that might have been another manga or another anime or an ongoing series somewhere. But all you get is that one chapter. And at the end of that chapter, you're either satisfied or unsatisfied, either intentionally unsatisfied or unintentionally satisfied. And I came out of this with the same feeling that I have every time I watch Robot Carnival, sort of this general sense of... (sighs) Because it really does move quickly, and it moves quickly in a way that I think works. I wouldn't say it's a a perfect encapsulation of story, but it is an encapsulation that, for me, 
works. It gives me just enough to get by, and it ends with that ambiguity and that strange sense of, wait, are they are they German or dead? I don't know. And I, I kind of enjoy that. I like it when something is willing to give you an experience that you are required to bring something to. It's willing to give you a story that you may not get everything out of it that they put into it, but that's kind of on you. And I feel like on that level, for me, it's successful, especially the ending. But the last couple of issues worth of, of you know, cat interaction kind of make me think two things. One, I'm not going to trust Dots. Uh, not that I did anyway. And two, he'd look really cool if I just launched him out into space. And so that, I think, is going to be my takeaway from this. It's a book that I enjoyed. I feel like it succeeds more often than not. And also, I'm probably going to launch the cat. So yeah. I, I enjoyed this book. I, I did think that it was a very quick read. Um, if I, I think that this is a great example of things that I've said before about certain things belong as an OGN or direct-to-trade. I think this is one of those that does that. Uh, unless the point is, you know, after you've read this issue, do a lot of thinking for the next month until the next issue comes. Uh, I don't know if that is the point because there are too many other distractions in the world at this at this point. But I think after reading this volume, you do sit back and you do think about the the things that you've seen and the, and the uh, actions that others have done in this book. Uh, and you start to maybe ask questions, maybe do research, maybe start thinking about in light of things that are currently going on in the world. Um, how does this book reflect those things that are going on and what are people saying about those things that are going on in this world and how is that reflected back into this book? So I think that this is a book that has a, a message. It kind of does hit you on the head a little bit hard with the message. That's fine. Um, I think that this is a book that I would say check out from the library. I'm not going to make this a, a um, strong buy or a must buy recommendation, but I do definitely think that this is something that you should check out from the library. Uh, Ashley, final thoughts from you. Yes. So the fan in me, if I were tweeting, would be like, this is flawless. But the truth about it is it bisects, it intersects a lot of things that I really like and presents it very beautifully um, and with great aplomb. So it's something, it's an experience that I really enjoyed. Uh, if, if this weren't digital art, I would love to own a page from it. Uh, but it is a tough kind of book to think about who I would recommend this to. Mm -hmm. Um because it is such a specific type of story, I do think it's special. I, I like it a lot. But I think if you don't have similar taste to me, which if Twitter has told me anything, I'm a garbage <laughs> pile and you probably don't. Um, I, I don't know if I would recommend that everyone goes out in a buying frenzy, except I really like the creators. And with independent comic books like this, your purchase does matter. Mm -hmm. And purchasing a physical copy sends more back to the creators than a digital copy. Uh, so for the sake of them continuing to tell weird, cool stories, go pick it up. Um, man, the book is so friggin' pretty, though. <laughs> it is very pretty. Uh, the uh, Wanto um, just does a fantastic job. Do and I don't know that's his real name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I don't just, know. I couldn't I don't remember if if this person was also the colorist of the book. I'm going to imagine so. But man, the colors in this book are so trippy. And of course, you're dealing with astral projection. I'm sure that uh, the color palettes that were chosen come from the chakra colors, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you really can dive deep into that to that side of it. So. 
Uh, Rodrigo, final thoughts for you this week. Um, I obviously really enjoyed this book. And like I said before, I enjoy it because it feels like a fable. I think a lot of the time you might be tempted to not approach it that way to say like, well, the villain's a one note villain. Well, it like just hits you so hard with the message, but that's all it's doing. Yes, the villain is a one note villain and the note is bomb, right? <laughs> it's like, it's not trying to be nuanced. It's not trying to, uh, to, to get into the nitty gritty of things on the gray areas. It's, basically making an emotional appeal. And in that, both through the story and the art, I think it's very successful. So I'd say if you get a chance, yeah, pick up, pick up, a, pick up a copy of it. All right, there you go. Thank you. Uh, Ashley, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ashley B. Robinson. The B is very important. You can find me here on the Major Spoilers Podcast. And just go ahead and subscribe to the feed so that you can also hear Geek History Lesson. We have Damien Poitier, the original Thanos, on this week. Yeah, I uh, haven't had a chance to listen to that one, but uh, I'm also 50 episodes behind on everything. So uh, <laughs> I will be getting to that real soon. Rodrigo, where can people find more of you? Uh, mainly on Twitter. You can find me at some critter probably picking a fight over D&D clerics. There you go. And Matthew, where can people find more of you? You can't find me. I'm invisible. But right, if you well, want to follow my oh. silly opinions, you can follow at Mighty King Cobra on the Twitter. All right, that wraps it up for this issue. Thank you for listening and thank you for being part of the Major Spoilers Experience. We love your feedback, so make sure you use the comment section at Majorspoilers.com to share your thoughts and reactions to this and every episode. Or even better, you can send us an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. And don't forget, you can support this show and everything we do by becoming a patron at Patreon.com slash Majorspoilers. And we will be back next week because we know that you love comics and we do too, and we will talk with you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel. I'm gonna rearrange your face if you continue to debate whether Logan's claws could pierce Steve Rogers' shield. I just couldn't care less if they bring back Craven. podcast is copyright 2020 by major spoilers entertainment llc